Heavenly Father, we do thank You and we praise You again for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that Your Word does not return void. And we thank You, Father God, that, that Lord, it applies to our lives as much today as it did 2,000 years ago when it was written down. And I just pray, Father God, that, Lord, we would have ears to hear. Just minister to our hearts. Conform us more to Your image. Teach us, Father God, how to have a heart with a heavenly mind, Father God, that our focus and our passion, our desires would be upon the things above, not on the things of this earth. We ask all these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, in the first 34 verses, by the way of quick review, especially since I wasn't here last week, heard great things, by the way, when Chris and Bill and my dad taught for me while I was gone. Pastor Don once told me that the success of a ministry is not how it functions when you're there, but how it functions when you're not. And it blesses me to know that you guys are being taught the Word of God in a great way while I'm not here, and that just blesses my soul. But in the first 34 verses, just to catch you guys up to where we are, Jesus was, was addressing the disciples and those that were in the hearing, and He addressed them on three separate issues, things that can rob us and keep us away from the kingdom of God, things that can keep us from being effective in the kingdom of God. The first one was hypocrisy. And remember how he talked to the, to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were really caught up in their outward appearances. And we see that a lot today. People think that they're holy because of the way they dress or the church they go to or, you know, I'm of this church or I'm of that church or some denomination they belong to or because they wear a white collar or whatever it might be. And they address their religion as their way or their path to salvation. And Jesus rebuked them. And he called them hypocrites. A hypocrite is somebody who wears a mask. In those days when they put on plays and programs, what they did, you know, they didn't have sound systems like we do today. And to make sure everybody in the back could see their, their passion or whatever was going on in their heart in the play, they would hold up these huge masks. And they were called hypocrites. And a hypocrite is somebody who pretends to be something that they're really not. And he warned the believers as well, his disciples, not to be hypocrites. Not to pretend to be more righteous than we really are. And another hypocrisy that I think is very predominant in the church today is pretending not to be something that we are. And that's denying our faith, dialing it down, not being outspoken because we're afraid of what men might think. And so he addressed hypocrisy. He then, as we saw last, the last time, is he talked to them about two things again that can stumble us in our walk with God. And one of them was covetousness. Now, covetousness is something we rarely hear people say they're broken over. You know, you can be broken over struggling with drugs or alcohol or, or lust or, or greed or whatever. But covetousness quite often is something that people just don't even see as a problem. And here's what covetousness is. Covetousness is desiring more of something that we already have enough of. And the Lord rebuked them for, their, for covetousness. He said, beware of it. Why? Because we can get our eyes on the physical and get our eyes off the eternal because we are coveting the things of this world. The reality is that the things of this world are passing away. It's all chaff. It doesn't matter. We're not taking anything with us, right? We've yet to see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. When you die, you're going out with nothing. Amen? You know, the, the world says he who dies with the most toys wins, and that's not the truth. So a lack of satisfaction in what God has provided for us and wanting more of what we already have enough of, more money, more prestige, more recognition, more possessions, more comfort, just plain more. And that is not God's design in the life of a believer. A born-again believer, we should be satisfied with whatever God has given us. And I just want to encourage you with this. If you don't have peace with what you have right now, there's nothing you can obtain that will give you peace. Let me say that again. If you don't have peace right now, there's nothing you can obtain that will bring you peace. Because peace does not come from stuff. Peace comes from a right relationship with the creator of the universe. So covetousness is wanting more of something we already have enough of. Then the second thing he addressed after covetousness was worry. 
And worry is almost the exact opposite. Where covetousness is not being satisfied with, having, uh, with what we already have, wanting more of what we already have enough of, worry is doubting that God will provide. It's falling into the trap of saying, you know, the Lord must have forgotten about me. And he addresses worry real clearly and he says, you know, the ravens, I feed the ravens. You know, the lilies of the field, I clothe them. How much more do I love you? I'm going to take care of your needs and I'm going to take care of your food and your clothing, but not necessarily your wants. And I want to make it real clear. In the church today, there's a lot of people going around saying that the way you'll be able to tell the Christians in the end times is they'll be the ones with the most money. And it's all about name and acclaiming and God's some big holy Santa Claus up in the sky. And if you just, you command him, he's got to give you what you want. And I'll tell you what, you know what? The things of this world tend to take my eyes off of God, not keep them on Him. And you know what? We should desire whatever God wants to take away from me that I might be closer to Him. And worry is when we don't trust God. Fear, anxiety, and worry are all the opposite of faith. It's not trusting the promises that God has made for us. And then lastly, before we look at the text, the other thing that worry can do is it robs us of our testimony. When we worry and the world sees us worrying... And then we try to tell them about Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider, and what a great and awesome God we serve. They doubt our testimony. And just remember the analogy I love to use. When you squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice, right? Or lemonade. And when you squeeze a Christian, you ought to get Christ-likeness. When we go through difficulties, that's when the world is watching. That's when they want to see what this God we serve is really all about. And when we worry, we blow our testimony. So how do we keep from being distracted from what really matters in life by covetousness and worry? How do we keep from living hypocritical lives? How do we keep from being self-righteous? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about this morning as we continue on in our text. And the way I title it is by having a heavenly heart. And what I mean by that is having a heart that is focused on heaven and not on the world. The Bible says in Luke chapter 12, verse 34, that's the, the last verse we finished off with last week. Let's take a look at that. It says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When our desires and passions and focus are placed upon the eternal rather than the temporal, then guess what? We're going to have peace. You know what? Our heart will always be for home. Wherever home is, that's where your heart's going to be. Let me ask you a question this morning. Examine your own heart. Where is, where's home to you? Where's home? If this is your home, your heart's going to be for this place. And again, not that we, we can't love living here and not that we can't you know, desire to be salt and light in a lost and dying world, but our passion should not be for the things that are passing away, but our passion should be for the eternal. And I just saw this this week because I, you know, I was in the, many of you know, I was blessed to be able to go to the Bahamas for, for two weeks. And last Sunday, I'll be honest with you, I would have given anything to be here. And people say, you've got to be crazy. You could be laying out in the sun, riding water slides. You don't understand, this is home to me. And it's home from the physical sense that I would rather be here with you people than anywhere on the planet. Why? Because this is, where, this is where the people I love are. And this is where I'm called to be. And this is where my passion is to be. And so from a physical sense, that's where I desire to be above all else, is to be home with you guys. Now, from a spiritual sense, where's home? It's heaven. The Bible says that we are just passing through. We're aliens here. We're going to address that this morning. So where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And if we treasure the things that are eternal, our heart will be on the things eternal, and we won't be stumbled by things that are temporal. When we lose something that's temporary that we can't keep anyway, then so what? Because it's all chaff and it's all passing away. As Christians, this is not our home. Our deepest longing cannot be satisfied by anything that we can get here. Our heart should be focused on the one that we love. 
Why did I want to be here? Because I love you guys. Why should we desire above all else to be in heaven? Because that's the, where the one that we love the most is. Amen? Can you believe that we're going to see Jesus one day? Doesn't I mean, we, we know that, but do you ever just sit back and think about that? That blows my mind. And while we were in the Bahamas this week, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been on the planet, and something came into my mind. This is a fallen planet, corrupted by sin, and if it's this beautiful, it's a dung heap compared to heaven. Amen? As beautiful as this place is, I can't... You know, and no matter how great you think heaven's going to be, it's going to be way better than that. Amen? And that's where we're going, and that's where our heart ought to be, and that's where our focus ought to be, and that's where our passion ought to be. So this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' words about having a heavenly heart. And let me tell you some things about a heavenly heart. A heavenly heart is watching and waiting. A heavenly heart is working. It's busy about His Father's business. A heavenly heart is at war with the world. It's an alien and an enemy to a worldly heart. And a heavenly heart is spiritually discerning. So let's pick up in verse 35 and look that a heavenly heart is waiting and watching. And we're going to watch our Lord shift the emphasis from being worried about the present to being watchful about the future. One of the best ways to conquer hypocrisy is to have our mind on things above instead of having our mind on things of this earth. So let's begin in verse 35 and take a look. It says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Now it's interesting, Jesus is going to contrast a faithful servant and an unfaithful servant. And the first thing he talks about is a Jewish wedding. Now we've talked about this before. I love... Jewish weddings, because I love all the, the pictures in it. Just like Passover is such a clear picture of Jesus, so too is a Jewish wedding. And I've shared this with you before, but real quickly. In the, those days when a man was betrothed to a woman, they were chosen to be together, then the man would go away and he would prepare a place for this woman he had been betrothed to. But before he left, he would give her a gift to signify their union. Then he would go away and he would prepare this place. And when the place was made ready, the father was the one who would inspect it for the son. And he would say, okay, the house has been made ready. Go back and get your bride. And in front of the bride would run, the, in front of the groom, excuse me, would run the best man. And the best man would run into town and say, he's coming. He's coming. Get ready. The groom's coming. And the bride would quickly make herself ready and all of her bridesmaids. And in would come the groom and they would be swept away and they would go and have this, the wedding ceremony. But at the end of the ceremony, before the great wedding feast, they would go away and spend seven days together and for the first time have intimacy one with another, alone together, unchaperoned for the very first time. And at the end of that seven days, they would come back and they would enjoy this great wedding feast. Well, to me, it's so painfully clear what that all signifies. Because Jesus Christ gave us a gift. We're His bride. He's the groom. The gift He gave us is the person of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. It's a down payment on our eternal inheritance. And then he's gone away, and what's he doing? He's preparing a place for us. And he sends the best men in front of him and says, he's coming, it's preparation, we need to be looking up because our redemption draweth nigh, amen? And so he sends the one before him, and one day he's going to come back and he's going to take us away, not for seven days, but for seven years, during that time of great tribulation on the earth, where we will have time one-on-one -on -one with Almighty God, and I can hardly wait. And at the end of that seven years, we're going to come back and we're going to rule and reign with Him for a thousand years on earth. Now what an awesome picture that we see in a Jewish wedding. And so he uses this analogy of a Jewish wedding that took place most of the time at night, by the way. 
And he says, to the servants of the master, when your master goes, gird yourself and be ready for when the master is going to return. The master is going to be returning with his bride and you make yourself ready for when he comes. When you gird yourself, they, would take, they, they wore robes and they would take their robes and they would tuck them in. And they tucked them in so they could move quickly and freely. He says, gird yourself. And then he says, have your lamps burning. Be attentive. Be watching. Be ready. And then look what it says there. It says, for when he will return, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. How sad would it be if he came to the door and they weren't there? Can you imagine the master comes back and he shows up with his bride, he's carrying her in his arms, he's ready to come in and the servants don't answer the door because they're all asleep. Well, you know what? A lot of people are going to be asleep at the switch when the Lord returns. They're going to, he's going to come back at a time when they least expect and they're not going to be ready for his return. Now verse 37 says this, Blessed are those servants whom the master when he comes will be found watching. Blessed are those who are found watching. Oh, how happy will those be whose focus is on Christ when He returns. The world's focus is on the temporal. Success, wealth, money, all those kinds of things. But as Christians, our focus ought to be on the the eternal. Look for the return of Jesus Christ. You know, I have people say to me sometimes, well, you know, people have been talking about the Lord coming for a long time. And you know, that's true. But guess what? That means it's all the closer. Amen? And you know what? We need to be looking up. We need to be ready. You know what? If, if you knew that the Lord, first of all, you can't because no man knows the day or the hour. Anybody tries to tell you the day or the hour the Lord's coming back, rebuke him. He's a false prophet because that's what the Bible says. Amen? And a lot of religions have done it. I think Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted it ten times. Well, guess what? They've been wrong ten times. And here's the reality. Jesus Christ is coming back. And how would you live this coming week, if you knew that He was coming at the end of the week? Would you live any different than you're planning on living if you knew for sure that He was coming at the end of the week? I think we'd all answer yes to that. Amen? We'd probably go home and clean our house out of some things. We'd have a greater passion for personal uh, purity before God. We'd have a greater burden for the lost. And those things are all going to be true when we're looking up. Our Savior loves us. He died for us. His eyes are on us. Matter of fact, I talked about how He can't take His eyes off for you. He's preparing a place for us. He's coming back to take us home. We're going to heaven. And a heavenly heart is waiting and watching and is not deterred by worldly circumstances. And look what it says. Now this blows me away. Watch the second part of 37. So blessed is he who is found watching. The one who's ready. Lord, I know you're coming. And Lord, I'm watching and waiting for your return. But look what it says. Surely I say to you, he will gird himself, have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. The remarkable thing about this story is that the master serves the servants. That blows me away. The master comes home and he serves the servants. In Jewish weddings, the bride and groom were treated like a queen and king. But our king will minister to his faithful servants when he greets us at his return. He will reward us for faithfulness. Now doesn't that blow you away? He dies, pays the price for your sin, that you might have eternal life. Then he gives you gifts... And He equips you to use them. And then He calls you to use them. And then He empowers you with the Holy Spirit to use them. And then you just obey Him and He gives you gifts. That blows my mind. What a great God that we serve. Amen? He does all the work and He gives us gifts. We're sinful, wicked, perverse people who, who deserve hellfire, separation from God for all eternity. Yeah, Pastor Dave talked about hell. You know what? We're all sinners. If you don't know it, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Amen? Some churches don't like to talk about that because you might not come back. But I'd rather have you hear the fact that you are a sinner in need of a Savior than find out when it's too late. Amen? 
Well, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But here's our God. He loves us so very much that He suffered and died that we might have eternal life. He paid the price. And then He's going to give us gifts upon His return. Verse 38. And if He should come in the second, or thir- come, come in the second watch or come in the first wa- third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. The second and third watch, they, each watch was four hours of the evening. And the first watch would be the first four hours. The second watch would be the second four hours. And the third watch would be the four hours before dawn. And he says, if he comes back and finds those in those very late hours watching, how blessed are they? And you know what? We're in the, I believe we're in the third watch. I believe that the time is short. I believe the Lord will return in my lifetime. I don't know that for sure, but I believe it by just looking around at everything that's going on in this world and how it fulfills prophecy. But you know what? If we live every day like He's coming back tomorrow, we'll never regret it. Amen? But if we live every day like He's never going to come back, we'll find out the judgment that comes to people like that. So this Jewish custom, these men were watching. They were called to be alert, to be ready, not to be caught by surprise. May we not be caught by surprise when the Lord returns. May we not be living a life of hypocrisy. May we not be living in a backslidden state. May we not be people who aren't using the gifts God has given us. But may we be diligent and faithful that when the Lord returns, He finds us working for Him. This attitude we must have toward Christ in His second coming is that we should, as we go deeper and deeper in the night, be ready for Him. You know what it should create in us? A greater sense of urgency and a greater burden. As we look for His coming, and we know that it could be any time, there's no other Bible prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for Jesus Christ to come back. No more. They're all done. He can come right now. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, be just fine with me. We can have a potluck in heaven instead of in the gymnasium. That would be just fine with me. I'm all good with that, right? Food's going to be better in heaven. And so I'd be fine with that. But here's the reality. We should have a greater burden and a greater urgency. A greater urgency for personal purity. A greater burden for the unsaved and for God's calling upon each one of our lives. Verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. His coming will be like that of a thief, unannounced, unexpected, and we must be ready. I want to read to you just quickly. I don't want you to turn there because I, when pastors make people chase through the Bible, I always, you always lose folks that way, and I don't want to do that. So let me just read this to you. It's out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief at the night. For they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are the sons of light, sons of day, and we are not in night nor darkness. So the Lord is going to return, and most of the world is going to be in shock. Most of the world is not going to know what happened. We're going to be in heaven with Almighty God. I believe even some of the people that are taken away that were going to be grieved at where they were spiritually. We talked about this in the last few weeks, how the Bible talks about Him wiping away every tear. Where our sins have been forgiven, so what are the tears for? I believe it's for the fact of the things that we could have done for Him that we didn't do. We're going to be grieving. Lord, I could have done so much more for You. We'll never, ever regret what we've done for the kingdom of God. So a heavenly heart is waiting and watching. A heavenly heart is also working doing, busy about his father's business. Look at verse 41. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is this faithful and wise steward, 
who his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season. So, so that they would not mistakenly think that it was all about just waiting and watching. The Lord then turns to doing and working. Now, we are not saved by our works. We're not saved because we do so many good things that somehow we earn God's favor and now we get into heaven. There's not a big scale up in the sky. Oh, you sinned. Oh, you did something good. Oh, you sinned. Oh, you did something. Aren't you glad? Amen? I mean, that'd be bad news, right? And a lot of people, that's what they do. I've got to go door to door and knock for 12 hours so I can erase the fact that I cheated. You know, that's, that's not how it works. Jesus said, it is finished. All the sin's been paid for. Amen? All of it. Past, present, and future to Talistai. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And so we see here, though, he wants us to know that that the faithful ones, those with a heavenly heart, will not just be found watching, but working. You've got all kinds of people, they build monasteries up on mountains, and they go up there and just wait. But the Lord didn't save us to make us pew potatoes. Amen? He didn't save us so we could be the biggest, fattest sheep, best-fed sheep in town. Right? A bunch of, right? A bunch of big, fat sheep. That's not the Lord. He saved us to use us. We've talked about this. The Dead Sea is dead because it's got an inlet and no outlet. As Christians, He saved us, and He's called us, and He wants us to be faithful to what He's called us to do. If you're here this morning, and you're a born-again Christian, you've given your life to Jesus Christ, God has a calling upon your life. Amen? Amen? That was weak. Amen? Okay. God has a calling on your life. And God has gifted you for that calling. And when He returns... We should be found doing, not just waiting. Oh, good. I've been waiting here. About time you showed up. The reason the Lord hasn't come yet is that I believe He's still waiting for that last person to give their life to Him. Amen? One more. Just one more. I'll tell you what, I'm glad He waited for me. Aren't you glad He waited for you? Amen? And so we need, we need to have that focus and that heart and that passion to be doing, not just sitting around and waiting and watching. We need to be watching but while we're watching, we need to be working. And so the Lord says to, in this message, they, they say, well, is this message just for us? And the Lord's basic response is, no, this message is for everyone. The message that He gave to the apostles 2,000 years ago applies to everybody in this room today. Amen? Everything that's in the Bible applies to you. It is one that He found, that is found doing. Look at what it says there in verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. When the Lord returns, we should be found active, doing things for the kingdom of God. One whose heart is focused on heaven will find serving the Lord as an incredible blessing and a privilege, not a burden. I would define it this way when I was a youth pastor for 15 years. I'd say, kids, it's a get to, it's not a have to. Amen? I get to serve God. I get to minister to His people. I get to share my faith. I get to come early and set up chairs. I get to, you know, clean the bathrooms. I get to go and minister in the children's ministry. If it's a have-to, stop doing it. Amen? If you're doing it because you have to, stop. If you're giving because you have to, don't. God loves a cheerful giver. Amen? You know what? I don't have to call Javier at home and say, Hey, bro, you guys practice and worship this week? I'm make just making sure. I, never, I haven't, for two years, never once, had to call him at home and make sure he was doing it. I don't have to call Bill, make sure the sound's set up. I don't have to call... You know why? Because when you're called by God, it's a get-to, it's not a have-to. Amen? And it's a joy. All you have to do is look at the bookstore. That looks like a get-to, right? Amen? That's a get-to over there. Now, the lending library, I'm not so sure. But this is a get-to. Why? Because it's a passion. It's a calling. And you know what? I get to... 
open up God's Word, spend hours with Him, and then share what God reveals to me. I can think of no greater thing. I'd rather do this than be Bill Gates all day long. Why? Because this is eternal stuff. And it's because God... So God has that same calling on every life in this room. He's called you, and He wants, when He returns, that we should be doing. Not sitting and just waiting and watching, but doing. We've been called by God. While our calling may seem insignificant in the eyes of the world, the key is not to be renowned in the eyes of men, but faithful in the eyes of God. What calling and gifting has God given you? Think about that just for a moment. God's called you, so He's gifted you. What gift do you have? If you don't know, God doesn't want to hide from you. Seek Him. Lord, I know you saved me for a reason. Lord, what do you want me to do? And remember this. A burden is a spawning ground of a calling. What you have a passion for, most often, is what you're called to. I love teenagers. That will never change. Now, that's a calling. Amen? Most people, that, that's like the guy got the short straw. Oh, you get to be the youth pastor. Right? You know, everybody's drawing straw. Oh, youth pastor, you're stuck, short straw. But to me, I love teenagers, and I always have. And to me, it was a get-to to hang out with them. And I'd be driving down the road and I'd see them on the corner sometimes and just get out of my car and just go start talking to them. I loved hanging out at high schools. Well, it's a calling. And why? Because I had a burden for youth. My heart would break when I would see teenagers sitting out in front of Toys R Us on a Saturday night, 50 kids just sitting around. And my heart would break. Burden, spawning ground of a calling. A lot of times you guys have, you guys have trapped yourselves. You come up to me and say, Pastor Dave, you know what we really need in this church? Here's what I see. We really need this. There's such a huge need for this. This is what we need. Oh, sounds like you have a burden for that. Well, yeah. Oh, well, you know, a burden is a spawning ground of a calling. Oh, but I, I didn't want to do it myself. But, so when you come up with a burden, guess what? Get ready. And I prayed, God, bring the servants first. And you guys are here, so you must be them, right? Because God answers prayer. But here's the key. When the Lord returns, may we be found doing. And you know what? Here's the reality. We're not doing enough for the kingdom of God. Amen? Myself included. Both my hands. I can put my feet up. We're not doing enough for the kingdom of God. How do we do more? Have more of an eternal focus. Have a heavenly heart. Be so focused on what eternity is all about and get our eyes off this stuff that is passing away. A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amen? And we have that eternal perspective and that eternal focus. Our heart will be where it belongs to be. Oh, how happy is the servant who is found doing when his master returns. When the Lord returns, what do you want to be doing? Sitting in front of your TV watching you know, the 75th rerun of that same thing you've seen a thousand times? Or would you love for the Lord to come back when you're on a mission trip, right? Oh, that, this would be a good week. Lord, you can come back right now. All right, I'm on a mission trip. I'm sharing my faith. This would be great, right? And so may we be found doing when the Lord returns. Verse 44. Truly I say to you that He will make Him ruler over all that He has. So not only does God call us and equip us, but He rewards us for simply responding in obedience. And what we do with this life now will, will determine what we do in eternity. Now I have to confess to you, I'm one of these kind of people that I'm not... I have to, I have to just confess. I'm just glad I'm going to heaven. Amen? And I'll be, sometimes I don't really worry about, you know, I mean, Lord, let me be there is reward enough. I'm not looking for any other rewards. I'm not looking for, I don't, you know, I'm not looking for any position or title, Lord. I just want to be your son and hang out with you for all eternity, and that's plenty. But you know what I believe? I believe that the crowns he gives us will be the very things that we throw right back at his feet as a form of worship. Amen? And so when we come and he rewards us, those are going to be the things that we throw right back at his feet in worship to Him. And I want to worship Him with my whole heart.
And I want my life to count for the cause of Christ. My favorite verse is Philippians 1.21. It says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. That means he's the, he is my life. He's first, he's tenth, he's one hundredth, he's one thousandth, he's every number in between. He is my life. When the Lord returns, may we be found doing not just waiting and watching, not with my get-out-of-hell-free card in my wallet. There it is. I prayed a prayer. There it is. All right. I'm, oh, you know. And you know what? I mean, I don't want to get into heaven smelling like hell, right? I mean, I, I, I really want my life to count for the cause of Christ. I don't want to just barely make it with my tail smoking, right? I mean, uh, don't you want to be sold out for Him? What did He give for us? Shouldn't we give all for Him? Amen? May we be found doing when He returns. Again, if we knew He was coming soon, how would we spend the next week? Let's be doers of the Word, not hearers only. Verse 45, But that servant says in his heart, My master's delaying in his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come in a day when he's not looking for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Whoa, now that's pretty heavy. So what, the Lord's going to return, and they're going to be plenty to say, oh, He's not coming. I've had people tell me that a lot. I say, well, you think the Lord's coming back today? No, I don't think He's coming today. Well, guess what? Be aware, because the Bible says, in the hour when you think not, right? We need to be looking and saying, you know, Lord, He may come today. And Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And may I be living my life as if you were going to come back this afternoon. A heavenless heart is apathetic. A heavenless heart is more focused on his or her own physical desires than the spiritual needs of others. All who are not looking for Christ's return will be surprised when he does. And again, if we knew he was coming, there would be a greater urgency, a greater desire for personal purity, a greater desire for those who are lost. Again, those whose heart and treasure is on the earth are going to reap its judgment. May we not reach the judgment of God, but reap the grace of God. And it says... That he will, and verse 47 again says, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they also shall ask the more. Now it's interesting. God's judgment will always be fair and righteous. Nobody will stand before God and say, that's not fair. Nobody. Now, people say that. Oh, man, if that's the way God is, then I've got a few things to talk to Him about when I get up there. You ever heard anybody talk like that? I've got a few questions for God. No, you don't have any questions. You're going to be sprawled out face down on the ground in awe and reverence of Him. Amen? The Bible says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Nobody's going to be standing up waving fingers at Almighty God. Amen? Ain't going to happen. It's going to be like this, right? Now... The people who will receive the greatest judgment are those who have had the greatest exposure to His truth. I believe that there's two separate things it talks about here in this, this basic principle of accountability before God. One, I believe there's accountability for the unbelievers. Those who've had the greatest exposure to the gospel. You know what? You can't live in the United States and not have some exposure to the gospel. It's impossible. At some point in your life, you had to have heard how to become a Christian. Now, sadly, some churches are watering it down and dialing it down because we don't want to offend anybody. And, you know, and we've got to be careful. We need to teach the whole counsel of God. Amen? You know, don't, people need to hear they're sinners, but they also need to hear that there's a Savior. Right? Don't just tell people every week how wonderful they are. You guys are just so wonderful. Go out and just stay. You're wonderful. No, you're not. You're sinners, man, just like me. Amen? And we're in need of a Savior. 
And that's why He came and suffered and died. But there's going to be an extra level for those of judgment, I believe, for those who have the opportunity to know God in a greater way. But I also believe this. There's also going to be judgment in a sense where we are grieved in our hearts for the level of calling and gifting upon our life as a believer and whether or not we've been faithful to it. If you've been called by God and you don't use that gift, you are going to grieve about it one of these days. Amen? God's called you to use you. God wants to use you more. Some of you know that you've been called by God and you're holding back. Stop. Amen? If God's called you, He will equip you. Where God guides, God provides. Amen? And if He's guiding you, He'll provide for you. He will give you, the, he will give you the, the power of His Holy Spirit. If there's somebody at work that you know you're supposed to share your faith with and you've been scared to death, just go do it t- tomorrow morning at work. Amen? Just say, Lord, give me the opportunity and then, give me the, then just give me the boldness to do it. And fill me with the Holy Spirit that you might speak through me. If you've got a gift, whether it's worship or, or ministering to kids or whatever it might be, whatever that gift is, you know it's on your heart. Be faithful with it. Do more. God wants to do more with you. God wants to do more with me. And we will be accountable one day because for whom much has been given, much is required. You know what? The Bible says that a pastor or a teacher is worthy of double honor. A lot of people like that part of the verse. The second part of it talks about that he will face greater judgment. So when I study to share the Word of God with you guys, I don't think about the double honor part. I think about the greater judgment part. I think, Lord, Lord, may I never teach anything that's contrary to your word or your will. That's why I want you guys to have a Bible. I want you to make sure this is not the gospel according to Dave, right? You don't, you're not a follower of Dave. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you ever see the worldwide ministry of Dave, you know, shoot me down, please, right? It's not about men. It's about God. And we need to make sure that our heart and our focus and our passion is working and busy about our Father's business. So a heavenly heart is working, is busy about the Father's business. A heavenly heart is also at war with the world. Now a lot of people struggle with this, but this is reality. This is not your home. You are aliens here. If aliens showed up on this planet, how would they be received? They'd be shooting missiles at them before they got here, right? Well, you guys are aliens here. And as aliens, you're not going to be well received in this world. A heavenly heart is at war with the world because we are aliens and enemies of a worldly heart. As we wait and we watch and we work, we will not have an easy time because we are aliens in enemy territory. And in these next few verses, he's going to use some real descriptive words. Jesus is going to use terms defining the opposition, the conflict between true believers and a lost and a dying world. Let's take a look. Verse 49. I come to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Fire in the Bible is almost always a picture or a typology of judgment. But it's interesting to me that that same fire that brings judgment also brings refinement in the life of a believer. Amen? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where were they thrown? Fiery furnace. What happened to the guys who were throwing them into the fiery furnace? They got scorched up and died, right? When they were in the fire... We know Nebuchadnezzar said, you know, who is a God that will, you know, deliver you out of my hands? That's, the, that, that's my Nebuchadnezzar imitation. We don't know what he sounded like. It could be like that. But he says, who is a God that will deliver you out of my hands? You know, heat it up seven times hotter. How hot does fire need to be to burn you? But heat it up seven times hotter. And then they throw him in the fire and they look in. Well, didn't we put three in, bound, and there's four, and they're moving around loose? And the fourth one is in the likeness of the Son of God. 
He went from, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? To come out, come out, you servants of the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar got turned around by that fire. Fire is judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? God's judgment by fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. But at the same time, that fire delivered righteous Lot. The Lord says here, I came to send fire on the earth. He came to deliver, but also to judge. John 9.39 says, And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. He's saying those who see and think that they know and think that they're righteous, that they may be blinded. And those who don't understand and don't know, that they may understand how they can have a relationship with Almighty God. Jesus came to bring salvation, but He also came to bring judgment to a lost and a dying world. Verse, 40, verse 50, But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how distressed I am till it is accomplished. The word baptism there, he's speaking of his crucifixion. Now it's interesting, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now he's already been baptized in water, right? That happened at the very beginning of his public ministry. Baptism is a picture of what? What is it a picture of? Death, Death, burial, and resurrection. Amen? It's a picture of the cross. It's a picture of what Jesus was going to do for us. And so what he says here is, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And this is interesting. And how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you know what a burden it must have been for our Lord as the cross approached? May the cross never go common. He paid the dearest price ever that you and I might have eternal life. In a few minutes we're going to take communion. And may we remember what ultimate price He must pay. So Jesus, sinless, perfect life, His death upon the cross, His resurrection... He came and suffered that we might have eternal life. And he says, baptism will divide. Fire of judgment brings division, and baptism brings division. In this case, the cross. The cross, in uh, Colossians 1.18, or I think that's what it says, in Colossians 1.18, I believe, or 1 Corinthians 1.18, excuse me, you have to look it up. But it says, the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are dying in their sin, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. I believe it's 1 Corinthians 1.18. And so to those who are dying in their sin, what is the cross? It's judgment. And to those who've been born again, it is salvation. So that very same cross divides. Amen? One of my favorite things to do, I probably did it 10, 12 times in the Bahamas. I see somebody with a cross on. Hey, does that mean something to you? What, why do you have that cross on your neck? Does that mean something to you? Sometimes it's a piece of jewelry grandma gave them, or they like the color of it, or it matched their earrings. But sometimes, like, oh yeah, it means everything to me. So the cross divides. The fire of judgment divides. And then it says here in verse 51, Do you not suppose I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. A heavenly heart is at war with the world. And Christ came, and there will be division because of Him. If you choose to follow God, you cannot follow the world. You either are an enemy of God and a friend of the world, or you're a friend of God and an enemy of the world. There's no in-between. You know, try, don't try to do the spiritual splits, right? You know, one foot in the world and the other foot in the kingdom of God, it hurts after a while. I mean, you don't want to do that. And a lot of people do that. They try, to, they try to live in the world and be like the world, but try to be a Christian at the same time. Choose today whom you're going to serve. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. You're going to serve one and hate the other, ultimately. Verse 52. From now on, five in one house will be divided... Three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You know what? When we have a heavenly heart and we're at war with the world, 
there's going to be times when it even is going to divide our home. I know several people in this room that you're the only Christian in your family. I know several of you. We pray for your families all the time, and that's exactly what we should do. But doesn't it divide you? It does. And you know it's true. It divides you. Your heart is broken for them, but at the same time, in reality, you have very little in common with them. Why? Because blood may be thicker than water, but the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. Amen? And when you've got Jesus in common, you've got everything in common. And I've got family members I'm not as close to as I am to people in this room. Why? Because we've got Jesus in common. When you've got Jesus in common, you've got everything in common. Amen? There's people that from the world's perspective, I would never hang out. We don't have the same hobbies, the same likes, but if we, got, if we, like, if we both love Jesus, man, we can sit down and talk about the Lord for hours, days. It's great stuff. I've met people in line at you know, Great America who I'm closer to than people I'm related to by the end of the time we get through the line. Why? Because we're talking about Jesus. Oh, man, I love your shirt, man. Oh, you Christian. Oh, praise the Lord. How long have you been saying? And, man, it's just you got that Holy Spirit thing, right? You just, man, wow, God is so good. Got Jesus in common. And at the same time, it brings division when we don't have Jesus in common. There are people, it's painful for me to talk to. I talk to about the Lord. They go, oh, I don't, shut up. I don't want to hear it, right? And you talk to about the one of, Here's the thing I used to tell youth group kids. You don't have to worry about choosing your friends. You just fall in love with God, and your unsaved friends will either get saved or they'll stop hanging out with you. Right? You get sold out for the Lord, and they're going to go, oh, that Jesus freak, man. I don't get, all right. You don't want to listen to my, you don't want to listen to Eminem. You don't, no, no, you listen to that trash. Here, let's listen to this, right? Seek first kingdom of God. Start talking about the Lord, and oh, man, they don't like that. And very rarely do you witness to somebody at work on, on Monday, and they invite you out to a bar on Tuesday. They don't do that. They just get away from you. They either get saved or they get away, right? And so it brings division. When you're sold out for God. Now, again, we should never be elite or self-righteous or think we're better than somebody else. Our hearts should be broken for the lost. We should have a burden for the lost. We should minister to the lost. But we don't have fellowship with the lost. There's a difference between ministry and fellowship. Amen? Fellowship means to have in common with. We minister to the lost, but we don't hang out with them. I don't go to the bar with guys from work so I can minister to them. I don't do that. I minister to them in a more appropriate place, and when they go to the bar, I say, well, I'll be praying for you, right? And your liver, and I hope you get saved before things change. But here, so it brings division. And we have to, we have to choose who we're going to serve. And you know what? Just like in Mount Sinai, it was very clear. Remember when Moses came down Mount Sinai? We're looking at this in Exodus on Wednesday nights. If you want to look at the, the story of Moses, it's great, and that's where we are. He comes down, and he, what does he see? He goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He's been gone 40 days, and what do they do? They make a golden calf. Now, this is after the Red Sea, mind you, right? They went through the Red Sea. The Lord parted the Red Sea. Oh, they saw it. They were, oh, oh. They walked through the Red Sea, and they get to the other side, and he's gone 40 days, and they're, oh, man, he's not coming back. And, oh, we just threw this gold in this pot, and this big calf popped out. Well, we know what happened. He said, those of you who want to serve the Lord, come to me. And all that came to him were saved. And what happened to everybody else? Ground opened up and swallowed them. It's in the Bible. It happened, right? Oh, ground open, I'm small. So choose today whom we're going to serve. It brings division. Serve God or serve the world, and you can't serve both. And there's no one more miserable than one that knows to do right and not to do it. So a heavenly heart is at war with the lost in a dying world. You know what? We're running a little late on time, so I'll get to the right. The other thing I was going to mention that is a heavenly heart is spiritually discerning. And how sad it is that so many people are lost. Can you see the end times going on around us or what? Have you read a newspaper? I mean, here's Israel. It's the size of New Jersey, right? Israel. 
But why is everything all about... You turn on the news every night and it's all about Israel. Well, you know, the Bible said it was going to be that way. Amen? People keep saying, we need a peace treaty. No, you don't need a peace treaty. You need the Prince of Peace. Amen? That peace treaty is going to be broken. There will never be peace in Israel. Let me just tell you right now, not going to happen. Now, after we're raptured, there'll be three and a half years. Oh, it looks like peace. And then you're going to find out they're serving the Antichrist. So there's not going to be peace. So we need to pray for revival. We need to pray for salvation. We need to pray for people's lives to be transformed by the kingdom of God. And so we're going to do uh, communion now. The worship team will come back up. But uh, a heavenly heart is also spiritually discerning. And we'll look at that a little bit next week. And so I just want to encourage you, again, by, by review. Here's what we looked at this morning. A heavenly heart is waiting and watching for Christ's soon return. Its mind is set on things above, not on things of this earth. A heavenly heart is working. It's, it's busy about the Father's business. Again, whose business are you trying to build right now? Yours or His? Whose business are you trying to build? Yours or His? A heavenly heart is at war with the world, and a heavenly heart is spiritually discerning. It understands the difference between what the world has to say and what God has to say. May we have hearts focused on heaven, faithful to our callings, unwavering in the midst of an unbelieving world. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a visitor, let me just tell you this. There's no such thing as closed communion anywhere in the Bible. It's not in there. No membership to churches in the Bible either. So here's how it works at Calvary Chapel. You show up and you're a Christian, you're part of the church. That's how it works. I don't see any membership classes in the book of Acts. I didn't see them do that. And they went through the 12th membership class and they got a card and then they were in the... That's not how it works. If you come, you're a member. That's how it works. So here's what we do. Communion is for the believer. If you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, then you don't take communion. Because communion is a remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done for you. The bread is a representation of His body being broken for us. He suffered and died in our place that we might have eternal life. The Bible says by His stripes we are healed. And that's not talking about physical healing. It's spiritual healing. He healed us from sin and death and separation from God. And then the juice is a representation of His blood that paid the price for our sin. Through the shedding of His blood is the remission of sin. One drop of Jesus Christ's blood could pay for the sins of all mankind. Why could only Jesus do it? Because He's the only one that was without sin. He's the only one who's the creator of the universe. He's the only one who's God. No other man could pay the price for you. Men may die for you but they can't pay the price for your sin. Only Jesus could, because He's the perfect Lamb of God. So what I want us to do, let's close our, bow our heads and close our eyes. We're going to pray. And the way we do communion here is as the worship team plays, as soon as they start playing, just come on up, grab the, the communion stuff, go back and sit down at your seat. You can pray with your, with your husband or wife or friends or whatever you want to do, or just take communion by yourself. But the Bible says we should examine our heart before we take communion. And may we never let the cross go common. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You and we praise You, Lord, again for Your Word. And we thank You that You did suffer and die that we might have eternal life. We thank You that You didn't give up on us, Lord, and that You love us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. And Father, it blows me away that He that knows me best loves me most. Father, I pray for each person here. Just prepare our hearts. May we examine our hearts. Lord, if we've been lukewarm, if we're not doing Your will, if we're not waiting and watching, if our eyes and our focus is on this world, reveal it to us, Lord. May we repent of that and get our eyes back on you. And Father, I just pray right now, prepare our hearts to take communion. But before we do, as every head's bowed, real quick, I just feel led to do this. If you're here and you don't know the Lord and you want to be able to take communion, it's real simple. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. It's not any good works you do. It's the good work he did for you on the cross. 
And it's just as simple as you saying, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. If there's anybody here, you can take communion with us in a moment. If you just say, yes, I want to make sure that I'm going to heaven. I want to confess that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe that Jesus Christ died that I might have eternal life. If that's your heart and you're here, I just want you to raise your hand so I can pray with you. Every head's bowed. Christians be praying for someone here who might not know the Lord. Is there anybody here at all? Anybody here at all? Don't hesitate because of what people think. Nobody else is thinking about you right now. Nobody. But the Lord's eyes are on you. Is there anybody here at all? Heavenly Father, then, we do just come before you now, and we just come before you as a family, taking communion in remembrance of what you did for us on the cross. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. So worship team leads, why don't you come on up and take communion.